This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad. Hello, product masters. Today we're talking about conjoint analysis, which is a tool you can use to make informed decisions about what customers value and also what they're willing to pay for. If you want a detailed written summary of everything we talk about, you can check that out at productmasterynow.com slash 342, along with the one-page action guide to help you put into action what we talk about right now. And if you have to make decisions about what features to include in a new product or the next version of a product, or maybe what price uh, to charge for that product, what people are actually willing to pay, um, or maybe you're looking at the impact it might have on the market. These are decisions you can make using a conjoint analysis, and so this discussion will certainly be for you. To learn all about this, we're talking with Patty Yanes. She's a market researcher who has led numerous research projects that resulted in new insights about customers and a deeper understanding of their needs. And Patty is with Applied Marketing Science AMS. It's a firm I've known for uh, several years now. They're dedicated to helping product managers with market research. And AMS was founded by an MIT professor and is uh, very well regarded in the industry. So Patty, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Delighted we can be together and talk about a tool that I think can be a little bit cumbersome when people first approach it. And it's actually fairly straightforward once you kind of know what pieces to put together. So, but, but let's start with the understanding of what kind of problems does Conjoint help with? What are some of the things that you've seen? Yeah, so conjoint analysis is really, I think, the industry standard for understanding the ideal set of features to include in a new product um, or even an existing product that you're updating. And it really solves the problem, the kind of age-old question of how much are people willing to pay for something. You know, we're always trying to figure out how to price our products, how to price them in the market and with competitors. And conjoint is really just the best way to do that across pretty much every industry and product type. Okay. Feature selection, new new product, what, what combination of features to put together to create that value for the customer, and in a sense, optimize you know, that value perception, or the next version of a product, same thing, right? What, what features to go in, as well as the price associated with that combination of value that we're providing. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. And there's some other tools that get talked about in the context of conjoint that, that come up at times. And just so, so for product master, masters listening, they might hear some of these. Can, can you just go through some of the other things that maybe you've seen or maybe even AMS uses at times? So there are different tools for sort of the different purposes of conjoint, I would say. So in terms of pricing research, there are a number of different techniques many will use. Conjoint is certainly the most popular and probably the one that's used by the most companies. But many use a technique called Van Westendorp, which is a little bit quicker, definitely easier to do in practice than conjoint and something kind of quick to throw into a survey. So that's a a technique that's really just asking asking people directly how much, at what price something is too cheap, at what price it's too expensive, and a couple other questions. So Van Westendorp is very popular, definitely doesn't have the rigor of conjoint or really the reliability of conjoint, but it is definitely quicker and easier. There's also Gabber Granger, which is another monadic test similar to Van Westendorp that many might hear about and use. So that's really the pricing type techniques. In terms of determining the appropriate feature, 
features. The other things that we'll often use is something called max diff or maximum difference scaling. That's really to understand what features are most important. Very similar to conjoint, except it doesn't include price. So basically, it's taking price out of the equation and saying, how do you rank these features? And related to max diff, there's turf analysis. And turf analysis is really allowing you to understand which bundle of features or which package of features will allow you to reach the most customers. So many times that's used in like advertising or product positioning to try to understand, you know, how to reach the most people that you're you're going towards in a new market. Okay. Thank you. So at least if we hear the names, we'll know how they're in some family, right? So pricing really focused on the van at Westerndorf. And the other one I wasn't familiar with, actually, uh, Gaber, uh, you said Gaber Granger? Gaber Granger. Okay. And then for features, max stiff scaling, which is basically conjoint. This one I hear about a lot. Conjoint without price and turf analysis to really kind of optimize, you know, what products in a maybe a product line, like if we're looking at different beverages, you know, for a new new soft drinks or something, should we bring out first to reach the most customers, that sort of thing? Absolutely, yep. Okay. So we're going to focus on conjoint here because it is so powerful and take some of the mystery out of applying this as well. I'm hoping you can take us through the steps for setting this up and what you do and maybe put it in the context of an actual example so we can kind of get our hands around a little bit more. Yeah, so it's actually, it sounds very complicated when you talk about it, but it's actually pretty easy. It's just like any other mathematical model where you just need to decide on your inputs first. So just to take a generic example, I recently purchased a new set of headphones. I'm using them right now. And I realized as I was going through the process that I'm really going through what a process somebody would actually go through in real life and why conjoint kind of mirrors that. So as an example, the first thing that we always want to do with conjoint is make sure that we have the right inputs. I always say, and I know many others that do conjoint in the field will always say that nothing quite exemplifies that garbage in, garbage out kind of quote, quite like conjoint or choice-based research in general. With any model, you can only test the things that you're putting into it. So the most important thing, the first thing is to really do any kind of qualitative research you need to do, any kind of discussions to make sure you have the right inputs, the right attributes and levels. So if we're talking about our headphones, for instance, they're even more than I realized before I went through this process. But brand, of course, is important. You know, there's the decision to choose if it's over the ear or in the ear or on the ear, which are apparently three different things. If it's wireless or wired, you know, that's an important thing. Having noise canceling, having a mic included. So there's so many different things that go into that decision. And all of those are attributes that you may put into a conjoint. And then, of course, you need to determine your price, right? And it's important to make sure that you have the appropriate price range. And amazingly, headphones can vary from anything from like $20 on Amazon upwards of $400, $500 for really, really good headphones. So you want to make sure that you have the appropriate range so that you can interpolate between everything, but you don't want it to be so crazy that people can't make a decision or are sort of baffled by it. Okay. So that's, I think, the most important. Along with those inputs, does segmentation factor into this yet, market segmentation? Like if I'm thinking of someone who's gaming, you know, the, they may, th- that might even say there's a, a group of features that you, you know, discussed that they tend to gravitate towards for that versus an uh, audiophile that's certainly looking for other things versus maybe a business person that is trying to enjoy music while they can also do conference calls. Where does segmentation factor in? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So segmentation is, it can either be part of the process of designing your study, or it can be more a part of the sort of cutting the data on the back end to see how the results vary. So if you are, for instance, a product manager for a company that's mostly geared towards one side or the other, you may be offering different products for those different markets, in which case you would do two entirely different conjoints, one with attributes related to gaming and one with attributes related to more audio. Um, if you are not necessarily doing that, if you're saying we're, we want to develop one product that's going to meet everyone's choices and maybe marketed differently to those segments, in that case, you would want to design one study with all of your attributes and then cut on the back end to see what's more important to a gamer versus um, somebody mm -hmm. that's doing you know audio things like this. So segmentation, it's important to define who your sample is in general. If you're looking to you know, develop one thing, then you definitely want it to meet everyone's needs in, in different ways. Okay. I'm glad I asked because I was curious how that fit in. And so upfront, we would use it if we're focused, we already know who we're focused on, then obviously that sets kind of the boundaries for getting the right inputs. And on the back end uh, might help us with messaging and, and positioning to different kind of segments. Exactly. Yep. Good. So we need the right inputs. This is a garbage in, garbage out problem. Let, let's start with the right inputs. Uh, what happens next? Yeah. So then after you've done that and uh, sort of defined your sample, as you just kind of alluded to, we want to make sure we have the right sample. We're talking to the right people. If there are different roles or types of people, you want to make sure you have a significant sample size of those. So for instance, we do quite a bit of medical device research and there are product managers are focusing not just on physicians, but also hospital administrators, nurses, kind of the whole gamut of people that would be going into a decision to purchase something. And so in that case, you know, you would need to make sure you have enough sample of each. So defining the sample is certainly next. And part of that, one of the things that AMS, my company always tries to do is pretest our surveys. So we always make sure that once we've designed our conjoint, we go out and actually talk to people and present these attributes and levels because you don't want somebody to be taking the survey and assuming one thing and we don't know what they're assuming. Once some things in the field in a quantitative sense, it's out there. And if you can't understand the results, then that's sort of on you. So always important um, to make sure that everyone understands the questions, the language, they understand the attributes, those are important attributes, and that the price is really covering the, the range. Okay. So make sure we're talking to the right people. And the medical device example, there is, is a more of a, a B2B type example where we have multiple roles involved, right? So like, like you said, we have, might have the surgeon, other assisting doctors, uh, nurses, administrators as part of the buying decision and the like. To understand these roles and how that takes place in the buying decision, right? You're going to try to, to target each of them, it sounds like here. And you said a significant sample size. How do we determine what is a significant sample size? Yes, isn't that the, the age-old question we're all dealing with? So certainly with conjoint, you want a larger sample size than you may get otherwise. So we typically recommend a sample size of about 300 if you can get it. The goal would be to have a minimum of about 100 per 
segment that you're going to upwards of 200 if you can get it per segment. Certainly that depends on your population. If you are a maker of a cereal brand, for instance, you're going to have no problem getting thousands of people, right? But if you're a maker of a very niche product or something that has a smaller population, it's going to be a lot harder. In terms of significance, I mean, certainly getting over 30 is the most important thing, but you know, a hundred is probably the minimum that I, I try to aim for with mm-hmm. a segment. Okay. For your medical device work, right? So the, the people you're getting to, the, their time is probably fairly precious and everyone's particularly busy now in, in the medical world. How are you recruiting? How are you incentivizing? What does that look like? Yeah, so there are a number of medical specific panels and and things out there that you can find these people. You know, medical is a little bit tricky in that, you know, companies can't necessarily use a list of people or can't contact their customers unless there's contracts in place. There's all sort of regulations and government rules about it. So there, we're definitely doing something blinded, going out to a panel. But there are many that are there, and the incentives do need to be quite high, I will say. You know, you really have to do a fair market value for incentive and make sure that mm-hmm. you're giving people the amount that their time is worth. But it's actually, there, there are a number that have agreed to take research, and so you, you just have to find the right panels. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there's pan- uh, research panels already in existence that you can basically contract with and find people to respond to a survey to analysis. Right. Do you guys maintain your own research panels or do you use uh, others and both? We don't. We don't have our own panels. We rely on the experts, which are other panels for that. Mm -hmm. But we do have an internal field team that works with all of our different research vendors, you know, has great relationships with our panels. So they're very, they're easy to sort of find for us. But yeah, there's definitely people that do that well that we will work with regularly. Okay. Yeah, I think this is one point where we get stuck sometimes uh, doing product work is we come up with the questions we, we we want answers to, right? Maybe we have that hypothesis if it's just some kind of general experiment and we're trying to figure out if we are, have the right understanding or not, if we're on the right track. And then we, we get bogged down thinking about, well, who's going to answer our questions for us, respond to the survey or participate in qualitative research or something? My advice is always, you know, just think through about the kind of person that you need information from and either be scrappy and go find them, right? Which might mean if it's B to C, standing in a store and intercepting uh, potential people and asking them. We, we, when people went to once upon went to malls, we used to do this in, in malls more, right? Or there's research companies that have people for you. You know, that, that will take the pain out of this, and you just tell them who you need to talk to, and they will find people for you. Yeah. And for quick and dirty, you know, if you're just looking for a few respondents or, you know, quickly, you'd be surprised how far you can get with friends and family in general of people, you know, Facebook, things like that. You know, often when we're trying to do something quickly, just to kind of get some quick answers, we can use things like that, which is, you know, generally free and (laughs) pretty easy to get. Yeah, I've talked to usability experts before who, for some problems, they have literally gone to the Starbucks once again when we had Starbucks open and put the little sign on the table and said, you know, free latte for five minutes of your time. Great. And just try to get some information back, right? So if coffee shop people are fit your audience, right? Again, you want the right people to talk to. Okay, and then you pre-test survey. So are you carving out a then a subsample like from a research panel to test with? How do you structure that pretest? 
Yeah. So generally the pretest, we try to recruit the same people that would be taking our general survey. So yeah, we'll, we'll carve out a subsample that obviously wouldn't then take the full survey, but it's generally a pretty small sample of people, maybe 10, where we're just trying to run through the survey with them. So we kind of have a conversation almost just like this, where we're sharing our screen and we're going through the survey and asking them questions along the way. Okay. And you're trying to discover what assumptions they might be making about questions, questions that feel awkward or leading to them. And some of us think we're pretty good at designing surveys. And I think even those of us that think we're really good at it are are maybe more often surprised that some questions don't really hit home the way we expect them to. Yeah, especially product managers. We have a tendency to know our product so well that we assume our customers know everything about our products as well. So, you know, particularly, I mean, even just the headphone example, like I didn't know the difference between over ear, on ear, in ear. That's something that I'm sure anyone making those products are like obvious, but I had to read about it to understand the difference. And so you want to make sure that you understand things that may not be particularly clear to your respondents so that you can describe it better in your survey and know what they're thinking when they're taking it. That's good. I haven't kept a list of survey questions that, that are particularly annoying. I should probably do this. It would be a good ser- service. But I do get a kick out of seeing surveys from you know very large companies where there's questions that we, we, anyone would look at and go, that, that, that there's no useful information with that question at all. Because at least half the people are going to answer it the way you're not expecting them to. right? That, because it's just worded badly. right? It, it's a ambiguous, misleading question. Yeah, I have a tendency to send those to to my colleagues and sort of laugh saying, what is this question? <laughs> yeah, we need we need the right question. So pre-testing is good. Okay, so we got the right inputs. We know what we're starting with. We're talking to the right people. We do some pre-testing to make sure that we're asking the questions properly. What's next? So then we field our study. We go into field with the panel. We send the survey out. We get the data back. It can take anywhere from a couple days to weeks, depending on our sample. And then the next big piece before we get into our analysis, which is obviously the meatiest part of this, is data cleaning and just making sure that, you know, everybody in your sample has paid attention appropriately, are the right people, all of that kind of stuff that we may not think is very nice to talk about. But it is a reality that sometimes people don't pay that much attention in surveys. And so you go through the whole process of data cleaning and then we get into our analysis. Yeah, and that's important because we may end up with some people responding to our survey who would provide misleading results because they're not somehow they got in, they're not the right person, right? So I had a survey sent to me recently and they were providing something that I wanted as part of the survey. And it was pretty, you know, it was like a 20-minute survey and like, oh, this is great. And they were actually providing data. They were providing a report that I, I was interested in getting. But the survey wasn't targeted to me. And I, I had that moment of ethical, you know, dilemma. Do I take the survey and re- respond knowing that it's not targeted to me so I can get the data I want or do I pass? And I, I decided to pass because I knew my responses would not be helpful for what they're trying to do, right? But, but there was no screening questions in the beginning to e- even categorize my alignment to what they're expecting. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's so important. And that was very ethical and nice of you. But, you know, many people aren't going to be like that, especially if they're getting money for it, they may just take it. So it's important to have those steps in advance to make sure that you're getting the right people in and that the answers they're giving are rational and, you know, the correct way to give an answer. 
Okay. Uh, hopefully we'll have some time. I, I want to go back and dig into the actual you know, survey structure a little bit, but some of those might get revealed when we start talking about what do we do with the data, right? So I assume that's our next step here. That is our next step. And the thing I love probably the most about Conjoint is that there's so many different things you can do once you have the data. There's a lot of different analyses you can run. So the first analysis that we'll typically do, and I should say, I should preface this by saying almost all of this can be done with the software that's sort of the industry standard for Conjoint software. We use Sawtooth software. They're based out of Utah. They are excellent. Their product is great. It's really just the the standard for doing Conjoint. Huh. Of course, there are other softwares to use, but this is really the one that we use, and they make it pretty easy for anyone to analyze. And that's a big deal all by itself, right? Because I'm pretty sure Sawtooth is one I've come across before, and they have some, even some tutorials on their website about how to set all this up and do things. But there was a time in the past where if, if you wanted to do conjoint analysis, you went to a statistician, and you know you walk you worked through everything we just talked about. They ran the grouping and the analysis in some kind of statistics package like SPSS or something. Or but now we, this has gotten better, has gotten easier, I should say. Exactly. Yeah. And I actually have gone through the process of doing it manually with one of my colleagues back when I first started at AMS. And it's so much easier now. Everything is just automated. And, you know, you can pretty much as long as you know how to interpret the results, you can pretty much do it no matter how experienced you are. So the different analyses that you would want to consider, these are the ones that I would say we do pretty much on every study. First, you want to see what's most important to people. So in a conjoint, the general analysis is a regression. Hierarchical Bayes regression is the type that we use, but there's many different options. And the regression equation is really spitting out like any regression, what is your beta or what's really driving the overall purchase decision for a product? So so in that case, we can look at which features are more important and which features are less important at the aggregate level. But that doesn't necessarily answer that question of willingness to pay. And so then we have to do a calculation to get the willingness to pay. And that that willingness to pay is at kind of the, the lower level. So not just at the attribute level, you know, something like whether it has noise cancellation, but how much are they actually willing to pay to have one type of noise cancellation over another? And so that's kind of where that calculation comes in. And so you can understand, you know, not just which features are important, but how much people are actually willing to pay for each of those features. So there, there, there's magic going on here without understanding the details more. So the regression analysis, this is pulling out, uh, it must be multiple regression analysis, so we're pulling mm-hmm. out those factors that people care most about. For product managers, it's the features that are going on. So back to your headphones. If I'm thinking about buying new headphones, first, I might already have in mind that I want something in the ear, you know, earbuds, as opposed to something over the ear. And I too have recently, I I just bought something the other day, I was going through this, and I'm not actually happy with the purchase decision that I made for my in-ear earbuds, because they sound amazing, but they're too big, and and they stick out, and they're, they're not as comfortable as I wanted them to be. So in that case, I figured out I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of sound quality, for better comfort and um, also just the aesthetics of it that I don't want them sticking out, you know, and kind of looking cyborgish um, as, as I wear them. We're trying to decide between these factors that really make me want to pick a product and then pay what I think is worth, right? Right. And then the willingness to pay. Let's think about how we might construct the 
in my mind right now, I have this matrix in my head, right? So whatever the survey questions might end up, but maybe there, there's a handful of features for our new earbuds we're thinking about. And perhaps one of them is how noise isolating they are, right? If they just isolate the background noise, maybe they do some active noise canceling could be another thing. Maybe there's something about boosting the bass, right? And they have better drivers for bass. And so is bass important or not? And then maybe, as I figured out, something about size and maybe weight is, is factors in there, right? And we're trying to figure out as product people, what's most important to our target segment. Fair so far? Yes. You're right so far. Yep. Okay. And so we're going to, going to construct a survey that, that tries to tease this out which one's more important than others? Well, let's stop there. We'll throw in price here in a moment. What kinds of questions would we be asking about those features? Right. So Conjoin is all about simulating choices that people are making and the trade-offs that they're doing to make those choices. So the general question that you'd be asking is you would present people with three three to four to even five different options of headphones. And all of them would vary on all of these different attributes that you mentioned. So you may have one option, for instance, on your screen that has, you know, noise canceling, active noise cancellation is maybe a little bit bigger than you particularly would want and but is very comfortable, right? And it will be priced at a certain price. And then next to that, you'll have another option that doesn't have noise cancellation, but is exactly what you want in terms of size and is more comfortable as well, for instance, at a different price. And so you as the consumer taking the study are really making trade-offs in your mind the same way you would in a store. If you're choosing between one product or another, you're saying, well, this one's a little bit more expensive, but it has this. This one's less expensive, but it's missing this feature that I really want. And so between those different options that are on your screen, you're selecting one and you're saying, this is the one I'd prefer. And once you know that, basically, we asked that same question 12 or so times with different variations. And so the system or the software can derive then which ones are most valuable, which are the things you're looking at the most, which are the things you care about, and how you trade those off with the prices that are available. So in that case, you're describing basically 12 different products, saying, you know, here's product version one and what the, what the features of it are like. Here's product version two and what the features of that are like. And you're asking, basically trying to get to which one's most appealing to customers. Basically, yeah. And it's even more than 12 because often you'll have 12 different screens, but three to four on each screen. So you're really asking it many, many times and getting so much information that then, you know, if you are using a great software, it's very easy for it to then derive what's most important. Right. To to pull out the things that were in common between those. Exactly. And when we think about features, you know, even a handful of features that we're trading off can lead to a huge number of possible combinations. So what's driving the combinations that you actually put in the survey? I would think some of that is just, you know, the engineering realities. You're working with your customer to understand what things can go together. Like you brought up in the, this example that makes sense. You know, if we add active noise canceling, maybe the unit weighs a little bit more. It's a little bit bigger, right? And, and that might be a trade-off decision I'm making as a customer. So that might be a realistic one to, to present. It's probably not realistic to have one that is feather light, almost invisible, and also has booming bass and active noise canceling. 
Right. So we definitely want to think about that when we're designing the study and when we're thinking about our attributes and levels. We try to avoid things that have what we call interactions. So, for instance, with vehicles, the classic example is fuel economy and speed or fuel economy and price, things like that that are naturally interacting. So if you you know, increase the fuel economy, you're probably going to decrease some of the power that you can get just based on natural engineering. So those are the kinds of things that we try to avoid avoid because any interactions that are in your model are really just going to sort of complicate the analysis. But what I will say is that if there are things that you know, just would never happen together. So for instance, you know, if you have Apple as one of the brands in your survey, you know that they're not making currently at least over the ear headphones, right? They don't have the sort of big bulky over ear headphones. And so it may be seem sort of baffling to a respondent when they're taking the survey to say, okay, well, there's an Apple option that has over the ear that doesn't make any sense. So in that case, you might put in some Something like a prohibition, basically excluding people from seeing options that have Apple with over the ear headphones. But the only thing to keep in mind is if you're Apple and you're designing this study, once you've gotten into field with that design, if three years from now you realize, wait, all of my customers want over the ear headphones, you can't necessarily model that because what you put into your design is as mm-hmm. much as you can take out. So it's important to always think through just because currently it doesn't seem like it's possible in the future. May we find technology that can do this? And if that's what mm-hmm. customers really want, then that's something we might want to design. So just because right now noise cancellation may not be able to be feather light in the future if you can design something to fix that and that's what the customer wants then that's something you should put your money towards yeah that's a good point think about future proofing this to a reasonable extent and this might also help you just identify trends and then you can uh, start working on those to be there when customers are there as well and the technology meets up absolutely yeah so let's throw price into this now so we, we talked about the you know the combinations kind of doing the, this kit approach to you know here's 12 different versions of the product and we're trying to tease out the features in those that are most important how do we throw price into that do we basically say you know more or less, here's 12 versions and 12 prices or 24 price, you know, we were presenting prices for each one of these. Yeah. So price, we always do as a range. So for instance, with headphones, as I mentioned, it might be $20 to let's say 300, right? And so what we would present is rather than just saying all of these prices, we would present it in terms of different buckets of pricing. So we might say, we're going to do one offering at $20, another offering at $60. We're going to increase it in increments of 40 and have, you know, seven or eight different price levels and have these different products vary by these price levels. So sometimes you might see something that has noise cancellation and it's $60. And another time you might see something that doesn't have noise cancellation, but is $40. And you as the customer are kind of making that decision saying, well, how much is it really worth to me? But rather than just asking someone how much it's worth, you're deriving it from their answers. And so that way, People aren't going to game the system. There's no way to, you know, kind of know what a co- company is going to charge. It's really just based on what you, what people say in the in the mm-hmm. survey. 
Yeah, and I think that's a really powerful aspect of conjoint, right? Where in all of this, the survey is is not simplistic in the sense that we're asking customers, what do you want? We are doing the role of designer and presenting them options. We're trying to understand their problem more deeply, and we've done that work. And now we're trying to figure out, you know, which combination of features with that with some price creates the most value for them and the value that we can capture in return. Yep, exactly. Okay. And this is a powerful tool to pull all this out. So big picture, conjoint, really helpful when we need to trade off features and have a very credible way to respond to management and others that says, well, how do you know that's what the customer wants? And also at what price are they willing to pay? Absolutely. And also, you know, I think the third thing that Conjoint is great at is looking at the broader market and saying, you know, this might be the ideal set of product features, but the important thing that's missing there is the competition, right? So what are your Mm -hmm. competitors offering and at what price are they offering it? Uh, Because if they're offering the same options at a lower price, you're not going to get very far with your market share. So once we have kind of all of our information, we can then build a simulator and basically simulate different versions of the market. So imagine we now enter the market with this new product. How much is that going to potentially cannibalize our current sales? How much is that going to steal from the market leader? And then what if their competition responds and they come back with a product that has more features at a lower price? So we can really sort of simulate all of these different market realities to see how we think things would play out in certain situations. Excellent. Thank you for taking us through some examples of how Conjoint helps us and the steps. And Patty, this uh, podcast or time together is sponsored by the RPM Experience. That's the Rapid Product Master Experience. Uh, This is actually a system I put together to help product teams and product managers reach higher performance together. We do that uh, by meeting 75 minutes a week over the course of nine weeks. It's designed to expose people to tools, concepts, practices that they can use, including Conjoint. But we don't go into the detail like we just went into, right? And obviously further detail to actually use it, but to make you aware of tools, practices, concepts to apply to let us be better performers also really helps with collaboration. So you probably went to school to learn a lot about market research, I assume. I did, yep. yes. <laughs> yep, and, and that's what you've been practicing now. And most of us in product management actually did not go to school to learn much about product management. And this is an opportunity to get a strong foundation and get a team working better together, collaborating with each other and having a better focus on the customer. Anyone listening that wants to check that out, you can just go to productmasterynow.com slash RPM and you will find more information on that. Patty, you know, I asked you for an innovation quote before we got together. We, we love innovation quotes around here. What do you have for us? And tell us, tell us what that means to you. Yeah. So the innovation quote that I love and say a lot to my clients whenever they question certain things is that the customer's perception is your reality. This is a quote. It's by Kate Zabriskie. She is a learning and development industry veteran. She's written a lot about leadership, innovation, communication, kind of the whole gamut of of running companies. But I love this quote because it really puts the customer at the center of the way we think about innovation. And that's really what my company AMS is all about. Our foundation is really around the customer really should lead and design any work that you're doing. And you should always be listening to your customers. 
And you should remember that the customer's perception and their needs, that's really the foundation of innovation and product solutions. Just because you think that you know what the customer thinks or wants, you don't necessarily know that until you've spoken to them, until you know for sure that it's what they're actually willing to pay for. So we always need to keep in mind that their perception is really the reality and it should be your reality as well. Excellent. And how can people find out more about the work that you're doing there with the AMS? Yeah, so definitely follow us. Applied Marketing Science is the name of the company. Our website is ams-insights.com. We're on Twitter at AMS Insights. And then we have a blog on the website that you can follow. And you can, of course, reach us. All of us are on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. You can connect with me and we can talk more about research. Excellent. I will put all those links in the show notes and Product Masters. You can find those show notes and all the details of the discussion with Patty at productmasterynow.com slash 342. Patty, thanks so much. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.